Well, praise God for those wonderful songs. I hope that you are excited about singing these praises to God, that these are the sentiments of your heart, not just the words coming out of your mouth, but I pray that they are coming out of your mouth, that they are in our hearts and in our mouths. I want to point you all to uh, the song of assurance, these words, precious in his holy sight. Do you recognize this morning that if you're a Christian, you are precious to Christ, truly precious. You know, as a pastor, and we talk about this as elders, and, and even as we pray in the morning before the, the, the worship service as, as a worship team, when we look in the faces of other believers, other Christians, we are looking in the face of the precious blood-bought people of Christ, that Christ adores his people. He went to the cross for his people. And he, by the way, if you struggle with the doctrine of limited atonement, and I recognize that there are differences of views on that, uh, it's just one of the ways to think about limited atonement is to think about the fact that, uh, or probably we should say particular atonement, that when Christ died on the cross, that he, he died specifically for you if you are a believer in Christ. Not just this general net that he threw open so that he could open a door for people, but he actually died for his sheep. And we get that language in John 10. He gives his life for his sheep. He, he came for his bride. Ephesians 5, as the husband loves his wife, as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for who? For her specifically, particularly for the church. He loves us. We are precious to him and he holds us fast. Praise God this morning as we come to his word. If you would go to Genesis 26, verses 12 to 33. Genesis 26, verses 12 to 33. The title for the sermon this morning is Like Father, Like Son, Part 2. We really do have to treat um, Genesis chapter 26 under one banner, under one umbrella. It really does hang together as one distinct unit. And as I said last week, Genesis 26 functions as a replay of Abraham's life in the life of Isaac. It's interesting to see that in this one chapter, we have many of the major features of Abraham's life and his walk with God. It's almost like uh, everything we saw in the life of Abraham, which was drawn out in, in a space of over 10 chapters, we're getting a really quick rapid-fire repeat in chapter 26 in the life of his son Isaac. So the message of this chapter could also be entitled, and I, I kind of tossed around these two titles, Another title for this could be Covenant Continuation and Confirmation, but that one, that one lost. Uh, but that's what I was, I'll just give it to you anyway, so I can kind of have two titles. So that's, that's the second, Covenant Continuation and Confirmation, because that's what's happening. The covenant that God made with Abraham is continuing in Isaac, and then everything we're seeing worked out in chapter 26 is a way of confirming that. God continues his relationship with this family in the next generation. And he shows in various ways that he's doing that. That's the essence of chapter 26. If you're trying to situate this in the overall narrative of Genesis so far. It's continuing in Isaac. And here I'm going to show you all the ways that it's continuing. And that's what's going on. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 11 which set up the rest of the chapter. And there we saw that Isaac was presented like his father in three ways. So this is just a quick review of what we looked at last week. Since this is part two, we need to kind of have part one at least somewhat in view. So we saw like father, like son in three ways last week. First, in his friendship, in his friendship with God. God comes to him, he, he reveals himself, he gives his presence, and he gives his promises. These three ideas we discussed constitute, really, if you think about it, friendship with God. Abraham is called a friend of God. Isaac here is being presented as a friend of God because he has God's revelation, God's presence, and God's promises. 
So he is a friend of God, like father, like son. We saw it also in his faith. When the Lord comes to Isaac, he mentions how Abraham obeyed my voice. Now we know that Abraham obeyed the voice of the Lord, much like his forefather Noah, as we get God coming to Noah, constantly telling him to build the ark and do this and do that. And and what does the text constantly say? And Noah did what the Lord told him to do, basically. Well, that's what we've seen all throughout with Abraham, but particularly in the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. That when God came to him and told him to do this, that Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain and was going to do this as an act of obedient faith towards God. He obeyed my voice, God said to Isaac. And then what do we find in this passage? Like father, like son. God tells him, stay in this land. Don't go down to Egypt. And what does Isaac do? He obeyed God's voice. He did exactly the same thing that his father had done. So we see it in his friendship. We saw it in his friendship and his faith. But we also saw it in his frailty. Abraham is not the Christ. Abraham is not the seed. He's not the one that the Lord is referring to when he puts a curse on Satan in the garden and says that the offspring of the woman will will crush Satan's head, essentially what we have there in 315, Abraham is not that person. He too is a sinner. He too, like his father Adam, is frail. And we see this here, like father, like son in Isaac. This fearful folly and failure to witness and love, he goes into the land and he tells this lie. He says, uh, uh, my wife, he tells them that his wife is his sister. And of course, brings anger and a poor witness to those he is dwelling among. So we saw his frailty. That was last week. Friendship, faith, and frailty. Today, when we come to the rest of the chapter or up to verses verse 33 and when we get to verse 34 we start to see the Isaac we start to see Esau and Jacob come back into view but today we come to the rest of the chapter up to verse 33 we see three more ways that Isaac is presented like his father so still like father like son three ways in which God's steadfast love and faithfulness towards Abraham are also being expressed towards Isaac. And that's one way to think about this. As we go through these these various ideas, we're not just talking about the ways that, that Isaac is like Abraham. We're talking about the ways that God is dealing with Isaac as he did with Abraham. We're seeing the ways of the Lord with his covenant people. We're getting a repeat of that. So you'll look in your bulletin and you'll notice the three points for today as we walk through the latter part of this chapter. We see like father, like son in prosperity, number one, number two, in provisions, and then finally in peace. But before we get into our text for this morning, I want to start with a basic observation and question. We always have to keep these basic ideas in view. And in fact, let me just say a quick note about the Christian worldview. As we are teaching our children and even ourselves as we're cultivating a Christian worldview, having a biblical Christian worldview really boils down to having a a handful of ideas firmly in place. A handful of ideas that are constantly informing daily life just sort of popping up and informing every choice, every word, every action, every interaction. And we get one of those today. On the most basic level, this chapter shows us yet again the extent to which God is actively involved. Hear this this language. Actively involved in the lives of his covenant people. So here's a basic question for you as we... Start off this morning. Are you living as though God is truly active in your everyday life? Every nook and cranny, every moment, God truly active in your life. Are you conscious of His presence, of His providence, of His provisions? 
One of the ways that we can be reminded to do this, to live in this way, is to simply say this after coming to a passage like today's, Isaac's God is my God. That is, that is true. Isaac's God lives inside of you. If you are a believer, Isaac's God, the God we're seeing in these words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs is your God. He's actively involved in your life just as he is here. All this providence that we see, all the ways that God's hidden hand is present and all the ways that his hand is obviously present are indicative of how he is in our lives today. So let's not live like atheists, as I said last week, as though God is distant, far away, not present, maybe not even there in the way we live, but he's here. He's real and he is with us. I want to read a quote to you from Kent Hughes. He's a really good commentator on a number of books and you've heard me quote him before. He has an excellent commentary on Genesis, but he says this, when God's children truly believe that God is with them, a deepening of both faith and obedience takes place. So so back to this basic idea, it's when we lose sight of the fact that this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, this God who is so present and so active in their lives, when we lose sight of that, that's when we start to flounder in the Christian life. That's when we start to get involved in all kinds of things we shouldn't be involved in, or we start desiring things we shouldn't desire, or we just grow cold or dry in the Christian life. Faith and obedience suffer where there is not the constant recognition that God is imminent, not just transcendent, but imminent. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 26, verses 12 to 33. I won't read verses 1 to 11, but we discussed that before. This is God's word. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Asek. Because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, "Hmm, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Kind of far from the truth there, but it goes on and says, you are now the blessed of the Lord. 
Verse 30, so he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. These are not just ancient fairy tales. These are the means that God uses to instruct us as he tells us what really happened In time and space, 4,000 years ago in the life of the patriarch Isaac. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, we glorify you today. But Lord, we glorify you so imperfectly, just as Abraham and Isaac, your servants, did. Father, we are as we sing this morning, reminded of your infinite worth and glory and the immeasurable greatness of the gospel. We have not even begun to understand its depth and its richness, all the ways that the gospel of grace, that Christ in his majesty and in his meekness is worthy of our absolute devotion and praise. Father, to consider that we will quite literally spend eternity praising you for the gospel is unfathomable. But that is how rich it is. Father, we pray that our hearts would be nourished in the gospel today. We pray that you would remind us of your goodness to your people through this story, through this true account of your dealings with Abraham's son, the promised son, Isaac, but not the ultimate son. We look to him, Christ Jesus, this morning, and we pray that we would be found in him on that day. Father, we pray that you would assure us this morning of our identity in him. And for those this morning, God, we beg of you, for those this morning who are not in Christ, would you show them so clearly? Oh, God, be gracious to us today. Show those who are not in Christ, who are not truly saved, who are not on their way to heaven. Father, through your word, As you promised to do, God, in many places, show them today that they are not converted. And Father, would you be so merciful as to transform their hearts? God, this is the work that you do, and it is the work that our church ought to be about. And so, God, we pray that you would save sinners, that you would shine forth the glory of God in the face of Christ in fresh hearts, that you would break fresh ground, that your seed, the seed of your gospel would fall on fresh, good soil this morning as you make it good and as you give growth and give water and bring life. We praise you, God, that you have done that for many of us. And we pray that you would just continue to assure us of those things in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So first, we're going to look at like father, like son in prosperity. Look again at verses 12 to 16. In prosperity. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his servant. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. As we studied the life of Abraham, we frequently saw portrayed, saw him portrayed 
as the prosperous patriarch and the blessed man. In fact, we had a number of sermons entitled that. He's described as prosperous in many ways, but in particular places, this comes to light more and more. He's prosperous and he is blessed. And this, of course, goes back to chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, when we, first, when we really first met Abraham, when he first appeared on the scene. Here's what we get in those verses. Chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. God says to him, I will make of you a great nation. Listen to this little word, bless. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed everywhere in this short little space of words to this man, Abraham. He is the blessed man. And we saw this blessing realized in the events and circumstances of Abraham's life, even in the midst of his folly. That was the fascinating thing about it is God comes to him at the beginning of chapter 12 and tells him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to make all these promises to you. I am making all these promises to you. And then what does Abraham do after that? He gets scared. There's a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt. He doesn't call on the name of the Lord. He lies, just as we saw with Isaac. He lies to the people of the land. His wife's taken into Pharaoh's home. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God remains faithful. God blesses him despite, in spite of, in the midst of his folly. He acquired much in Egypt. And the text tells us, if you go back to chapter 12, the text tells us that he acquired much in Egypt and he left with all of it. So he goes into Egypt with not very much. He comes out of Egypt with a ton of stuff, with a ton of servants, a ton of cattle. Well, like father, like son, we see this same blessedness now in the life of his son Isaac. Like his father, he too is the prosperous patriarch and the blessed man. And also like his father, these blessings come to him even in the midst of his folly. Do you see that? This repetition in the life of Isaac going back to the life of Abraham. Even in the midst of this folly, this fear... And these lies, God's blessing stands. God had told him that he would bless him in this promised land. Chapter 26, verse 3. You can see it right above our passage. Sojourn in this land, God said, and I will be with you and will bless you. And this is confirmed very clearly here in our passage, very explicitly. Look at verse 12. Verse 3, you get the promise. I will bless you. In this land, and then look at verse 12, the Lord blessed him. Promise confirmed. And we see this blessing played out for Isaac in his immense prosperity. Now, if you read through this text pretty quickly, you miss the gravity of it. I mean, it really is incredible when you read the words and you put it together. The immensity of his prosperity is pretty clear. Let me give you four ways we see this here in these verses. First, we see maximum success. So verse 12 says, He sowed and he reaped a hundredfold. Now this really uh, doesn't really compute. A hundredfold, it sounds like a lot. But what exactly does that mean? What does that entail? Well, this is what we know, that when Jesus in Matthew is speaking about seed falling on soil, and he talks about seed that falls on good soil, he says that some of that produced a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. In other words, a hundredfold is maximum productivity. Whatever that is, it's maximized language. This is maximum success. We also see increasing wealth. Look at verse 13. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. We also see coveted numbers. Verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. 
so that the Philistines envied him. He's just growing and growing and prospering and growing. And then we see superior strength, verse 16. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So if we just look at these verses, we just read through them and just take account of what each verse is saying, just on a very basic superficial level, we see that this prosperity entails maximum success, increasing wealth, coveted numbers, and superior strength. But there are a few details here that make this prosperity particularly striking. It's already striking, but I want to give you three observations we can make about this text that, that bring it out down even deeper in terms of God's blessing here. First, this agricultural productivity is placed in the context of famine. I mean, we're not just talking about he produced a hundredfold just anytime, any place. That would be impressive in and of itself. But we're talking about this kind of agricultural productivity right in the context of famine in this land at this time. That is pretty striking. Sounds a little bit like Sarah having a child in her old age, in Abraham's old age, having been barren. Secondly, the language of greatness is multiplied here. The word great, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see this by the way it's, it's translated here in English. The word great occurs three times in verse 13. In Hebrew, this verse literally reads this way. And the man became great, and he continually became greater until he became very great. That's what it says. It's, it's greatness multiplied. And then third... A final observation we can make just to show us the gravity of this prosperity, the gravity of these blessings or the immensity of these blessings is that Isaac is described here as mightier, mightier than the local power, mightier than these these rulers of the land. Isaac is just a nomad. He's a nomad living in tents. He's just traveling around. There's nothing substantial from the world's view initially about this person and his little entourage. We know that there is a significant amount of possessions and a significant entourage here going back to Abraham. And so I don't want to belittle that. But certainly not to be compared with the power of the land the local political power and authority. But that's what it says. But it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just say that he is mightier than the local power. It says that he is much mightier than the local power. This is incredible. And this is why he is sent away. And we see this same language, and Israel would have heard this. So remember, we're not the first readers of Genesis. The first readers of Genesis were the Israelites encamped in the wilderness who would have heard these stories proclaimed, who would have heard this book read. And they can remember, as it is described in Exodus 1, verses 7 and 9, that this same kind of language is applied to Israel, the nation of Israel. Seventy people enter into Egypt at the end of Genesis. And by the time you get to this later Pharaoh, years later, the people have become so great in the land, so mighty in the land, that the Pharaoh himself is afraid that if he does not enslave these people, they will overtake all of Egypt. the same picture here. This is the blessing of the creator God. So what impact should Isaac's prosperity have on us? Prosperity is a tricky, a tricky word, especially today with prosperity preachers and private jets and Ferraris and mansions on the lake and so forth. What do we do with prosperity? We know what those guys do with prosperity. They use texts like this to fill up their own bellies. 
They use texts like this to suck from the people of God so that they can live in excess, greed, and the lust of the flesh. But that's not how a text like this ought to be understood and interpreted in the way that prosperity gospel preachers take it. So what do we do? Isaac's rich. Should we be rich too? What do we do with texts like this? Well, let's think through that for a moment. First, Isaac's prosperity reminds us that God is faithful to his covenant promises even when we fumble. So let's just deal with that first. That's very basic. Is, this is coming out of, out of his folly. What? God is blessing him after that lie he told? And after what he did, this is the grace of God. And in fact, if we knew the depths of our hearts, we would say, I don't ever deserve a blessing from God. Not a single blessing from God. That's how sinful we are. Undeserving we are of anything from God. God owes us not a single thing but hell. And he doesn't give us hell. He puts hell on his son. And then he fills our lives with many good things to enjoy. So we see here that this happens even in the midst of our fumbling, even in the midst of our sinfulness, even in the midst of our foolishness. This is a God of grace, immense grace. No sin can outmatch his abundant grace. And if this for you becomes a license to sin, by no means, Paul says in Romans 6, that might be a sign you don't know the Lord, if that's how you think. So that's the first I think implication we can draw out of this. Secondly, Isaac's prosperity reminds us of how God has filled us up and enriched us in this earthly life, spiritually speaking. Let me give you two texts that talk about this. 2 Peter 1.3. Listen to the language here. This is how prosperous we are as Christians. 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to you as a Christian. You are filled up as a believer. You're not empty with this tiny little bit of water down in the bottom of the cup. You are already full As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything you need to navigate this life, to navigate parenting, to navigate church life, to navigate your marriage, to navigate how to serve the Lord effectively, you already have. Now, this is far better than a private jet or a Ferrari or whatever. Ephesians 1.3 He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It goes on on to say, he has lavished us with his grace. Isaac's prosperity is an earthly picture of our spiritual prosperity. And and if you want to look at the prosperity gospel and think about prosperity now as we should understand it, just look at Christ and Paul. We don't need to go very far in the New Testament to see that prosperity theology is garbage. Jesus went to the cross. He was homeless. Paul suffered his entire life for the sake of the gospel. And then he had his head cut off. That's that's not the life of Kenneth Copeland. That's not the life of Creflo Dollar. That's not the life of these men. The life of Paul is the life of Christ. It is a life of suffering in this age. Isaac's prosperity reminds us as we turn to this third point that our future blessings are coming in the life to come. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider, listen to this language, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth Comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's Paul's attitude about prosperity. He says, I'm going to suffer in this life. 
This is a part of living the Christian life. In various ways, James describes it as various trials. This doesn't just mean somebody's trying to chase you down because you're a Christian, but there are so many ways we are buffeted by Satan. So many ways that we struggle through this life. What Paul says is that these sufferings are as nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you have any hope in that glory? Hope in that glory will draw our hearts away from worldliness and discouragement. And then in verse 32, he says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. This is Christ. He gave up Christ. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. That's the prosperity of the Christian. That's incredible. That's what the Lord has given us now. And that's what the Lord promises to give us in the future. He does not promise us that we will not get sick. And we pray that we will be healthy. He does not promise us that we will have enough money in our retirement account to do all the things we always dreamed of. We pray that he will help us be financially responsible and wise and that he would take care of our needs. We do not have his assurances that all will go well in all of life in the way we have signed up for it to go. But he promises to be a wise father who will fill us with the Holy Spirit and give us his promises and confirmations. So Isaac's prosperity reminds us of our prosperity as the offspring of Abraham by faith. You are blessed, not just because you had a nice day yesterday, not just because you you just had a baby, not just because it's sunny outside and it's Memorial Weekend. You are blessed because you have Christ the treasure of treasures, the eternal, infinite reward of the saints. That's why you're blessed. It could be rainy and nasty outside, and life could be hard, and you're still blessed. Eternally so, in Christ. Prosperous as can be. And one day you will reign with Christ in perfect, physical, and spiritual bliss. Now we turn to provisions like father, like son in prosperity, like father, like son in provisions. Look at verses 17 to 25. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Asek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Verse 23, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. It might seem a little odd to go from prosperity to provisions. Prosperity implies extravagance. It's a, a, a grandiose kind of word, while provisions implies basic needs or survival. Provisions are what you bring when you go camping. Prosperity is far more than that as we think about these ideas. But that is exactly what's at stake in these verses. 
The basic resource of water is at stake. Nothing that Isaac has really matters without this basic provision, this basic resource of water. One commentator, Derek Kidner, writes that Isaac's riches threw him back on his basic resources all the harder. The more he grew, the more flocks he had, the more servants he had, the more he desperately needed water. More than the person who had not prospered. Because he has to water all of these living creatures and people. And Isaac is having a hard time securing this basic resource of water. That's what these verses are telling us. He's having a really hard time. It's not working out. It's not going the way that he would have wanted it to go. He's been pushed out into the wilderness, first of all. The wells dug by his father in years past have been vandalized and ruined, presumably because of envy, so that Isaac has to has had to reestablish these. He's had to reestablish them, give them the names that his father had given them. And then this pursuit of water brings him into direct conflict with the people of the land regarding two wells in particular. So he goes and he digs these two wells, and each time he's got those Philistines there knocking on the door, so to speak, saying, no, 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 that's ours. No, 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 that's ours. So the first one, he names contention. He goes on to the second. They do the same thing at the second. He names that enmity, verse 20 and verse 21. And this is the same thing as we're thinking like father, like son. This is the same thing that happened to Abraham. Something similar, at least, happened to Abraham. Abraham. Chapter 21, verse 25. Abimelech's servants had seized one of his wells. So Abraham, when he's going around trying to get these basic resources, he's got these people of the land who are taking away his resources. And then Isaac has these people of the land who are disputing for these resources and who are covering up all of Abraham's provisions. This is not easy. This is trouble. John Calvin, reflecting on this, writes... This teaches us that God's blessings that we receive in this earthly life are never pure and perfect, but are always accompanied by troubles. So we will recognize and we should recognize that God has blessed us physically, temporally, physically, earthly with many things. You can't look in the face of your children without seeing God's amazing blessing. And if you got up this morning and were able to get into your car and get here, that's a blessing. Everything we have, our yard, our house, our pets, everything. The the bit of Cheerios that you had this morning. Everything is a blessing from the Lord. So we certainly don't want to discount that. And this is what Calvin is getting at here. He says that they are never pure and perfect, but always accompanied by troubles. And here's why. Here's why our blessings are accompanied by troubles. In case we neglect God because we wallow in our blessings. We are wallowers. That's what we do. We get really cozy. I mean, maybe you've seen this in your own life. Things are going great. Fill in the blank. Things are going great with your your family members, your money, your schedule, your job, dot, 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 dot. Just fill in the blank. Whatever it is, things are going great. And we are wallowers. We get down in those blessings. We kick back. We put our feet up. We pour some lemonade. We get very comfortable and content in the wrong kinds of ways in the midst of our blessings. Well, God is good to us. And so he flips over the long chair. That's how God works. Because God is a good father. He's good to our souls. So he goes on to say, So we must all learn not to desire great wealth. If the rich become harassed in any way, let them know that they are being awakened by the Lord in case they fall asleep in the middle of their pleasures. I love the way he puts that. What this tells us is here this morning... Whether you feel this morning like you are abounding in earthly things or whether you feel this morning like you are, you are really lacking in earthly things, this speaks to you. If you're abounding in earthly things, beware and be reminded 
that the Lord will bring things into your life to keep you from wallowing. Embrace that. Recognize that. Eat that with the blessings. But if you are lacking this morning, know this. That there is a grace even in that. Learn to be content and be grateful to the Lord that you don't have to deal with all of that. Strife and envy and trouble and so forth. God's grace is everywhere. In every life, God is good. In every life, God is good. Not just in the healthy life, but in the sick life, God is good. Not just in the rich home, but in the impoverished, struggling home, God is good. And he is gracious and he is building his people for eternal glory. To give him eternal praise. And he uses his people to help those who are impoverished. To help those who are struggling. I recently heard someone comment on a missionary. Well, a pastor living in a country in South America. Who had, uh, had I think, 10 kids living in this little shack. This little hut shack with 10 kids. And this is a man just, just full of joy. Has God not been good to him? Has God not been good to that man? Of course he has. Let not the one who lives with far more think that God has been far better. God is good to all of us in his sovereignly, fatherly way. And one day we will know why. We will know. In the midst of all this tension and frustration... God once again shows his faithfulness by providing for Isaac just as he had for Abraham. And so verse 22, what do we see? And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. By the, by the way, this word Rehoboth means wide, broad, or spacious. So God is, has made room and provided for Isaac. And then when Isaac returns to Beersheba... Where his father has spent much time, the Lord appears to him as, as he had in the opening verses. We read this in verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. What is God doing here? There are two times in chapter 26 where God makes himself known to Isaac. What is God doing? And it's interesting here when you see this, that in both, in both instances, it's in the context of trouble. So at the very beginning, what's the trouble? The beginning of chapter 26, the trouble is famine. There is famine in the land. And God appears to Isaac and he reassures him. And now we have, in the context of all this conflict, I mean, he's been out of the land, and now he's got these people who are disputing with him over these wells. He's had to move now. He's moved now to another place. God comes to him. What is God doing? God is removing Isaac's fear. He says, fear not. I want you to see here God's desire and God's means. Hear this. God's desire for you. And God's means for you are clearly present here in these two appearances to Isaac in the midst of conflict. And this tells us that God does not want his people to live in fear. He does not want his people to live in a state of anxiety. If you're an anxious person, and this is, where, this is not just the way it's going to be for you. This may be a struggle in your life, but this is not God's desire for you. That you be anxious and fearful. God is about pulling fear out of his children. Pushing his children away from fearfulness to trust. And that's what we see God doing in both of these instances. But this also tells us a little bit about God's means. How does God remove fear? By his word. God comes to Isaac and he speaks. He speaks his truth he speaks his promises. God's word is the means by which God will remove fear from your life. If you're an anxious person, you desperately need God's word. And that's why Isaiah 26.3 says, listen to this promise. I remember there was a time in my life, and I said this at one point, where there was a book that God had brought my way by John MacArthur, Anxious for Nothing. Very, very useful 
for me. But there was also a text during that period that was very useful for me that I meditated on. I remember as I was walking around the, the streets of Edinburgh, meditating on the, these words. Isaiah 26.3, I love these words. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's a promise. God will keep you in peace if you stay your mind on him. You fix your mind on him through his word. That's the means. We see it here with Isaac. We see it in our lives. A Bibleless life is a fearful life. It's never going to get better for you. You may think, ah, it's just going to, you know, maybe next month. No, you're going to be fearful till you die without the word of God. Because there's much to be afraid of in this life. It's a broken world. We're under attack. The wrath of God abides on the world. In one sense, we should be afraid. But God reminds us that in him, we should not. And his word is the way he protects us. We also see here that he's not only removing fear, but he's protecting against pride. He reminds Isaac that the reason he's got all these blessings is because he himself has done it. And he reminds Isaac that it is for Abraham's sake that he has been blessed. It's not as though God is watching Isaac and saying, Isaac, you're just so wonderful and so lovable, and I just can't help but to love you. Look at all the good in you, Isaac. That's not what God says. He says, I've done this for Abraham's sake, for the sake of my covenant with your father. So how does Isaac respond to all of this, to the conflict and to the provisions? What we see here is the life of faith. I'm going to give you these quickly. So three things we see in Isaac's response that show us the life of faith. First, he moves away from the contested wells without retaliation. He entrusts himself into God's hands, like Abraham with Lot. Lot chooses the best land. Abraham says, that's fine. He entrusts himself into God's hands. Secondly, he praises God for the third well. Now, you know what we tend to do when the third well comes along? First well, second well, we growl a little louder. Third well, well, God, it's about time. I'm glad you finally showed up. So we, we grumble, we grumble, and then we're entitled. What we see here in Isaac as the life of faith is being fleshed out is that this is not grumbling at difficulty, and it is recognizing that where good comes, it comes from God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. God was with him. He did not grumble at the first two wells. He endured. Patiently, he endured. Third, like his father, he worships and he settles in the land of promise. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So we see here this faith, the life of faith experienced here in Isaac. And then finally, as we finish up briefly this morning, we see like father, like son in peace. Look at verses 26 to 33. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. (laughs) So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that, had, that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Well, here we certainly have an echo. We've seen this treaty making at Beersheba with the Philistines before in the life of Abraham. Chapter 21 at the end, as it was with Abraham. Here we have observation 
and concern among the leaders of the pagan people. They observe that Isaac's God has been with him, and they are concerned about a potential threat. So what do they say? We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Let there be a sworn pact between us that you will do us no harm. You are now blessed of the Lord. What we have here is God showing his glory to the nations. God will be praised in the earth. We saw that in, in, in uh, Exodus. We, we see that in Exodus. If you've read, I, I said we saw that because uh, the, the ladies are doing a study in Exodus. So my wife Jennifer and I talk about it quite a bit. But we, saw, we see in the book of Exodus that God wants to display his glory to the Egyptians. Not just to the Israelites, but to these pagan peoples, the Egyptians. That God is the God of all peoples. Everyone comes from Adam and Eve, from Noah. And so God will be praised among the nations. Well, what happens with this request? Isaac is a little surprised. Didn't you just push me out of your land and now you're coming to make a peace treaty with me? Isaac's surprised. It's a little bit strange. Their approach before was to push him away, but now they recognize that they must be on his good side. This is political maneuvering and nothing less, right? These people are just making a treaty with a powerful person in the land. And they recognize that Isaac is a, is, a, is a pretty easygoing person to relate to. So let's make this treaty with him now. This is just political maneuvering. They don't care about Isaac or his welfare. They don't care about the Lord and his praise. They care about themselves and their future. But despite their previous misdeeds, Isaac receives them, prepares a covenant feast for them, and swears an oath of peace. We read this in verse 31, and Isaac sent them away, sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. So what we see as we come to the end of this passage is that the prosperous man is also the peacemaking man. And this points, of course, to the way of the Lord throughout the scriptures, is that we are a peacemaking people. We are a forgiving people. We are a gracious people. We are a people who reach out to others, even those who have offended us. And of course, the chief peacemaker is Christ, who comes to a world of darkness and dies for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no peacemaker like Christ. And here Isaac is pointing ultimately towards his descendant the Lord Jesus. And this peace in the land which God has arranged for Isaac also comes with further provisions. Verse 32, that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So what we've seen over the last two weeks is that God's plan is marching forward in the life of Abraham's son. This is covenant continuation and confirmation. The plan to remake the world, to undo the fall, to redeem people from every nation, to fill the earth with blessed image bearers who glorify God. This great plan is marching forward in the life of Isaac. We glory in God as we read this story. Even this obscure story with these obscure names, with these obscure wells of water. Because we are seeing that God's plan is marching forward in the very ordinary things of life. And it is marching forward even today. In each of our lives, in every success, and in every trouble, we should hear these words ringing, ringing in our ears. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you. That's what the Lord is saying to us, to us, his people today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the life of faith that you call us to. We thank you for prospering us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, with everything we need for life and godliness, that you have lavished us, filled us, sealed us. 
And we also thank you, Father, for all of the earthly enjoyments that you bless us with. We thank you for our health and for our families. We thank you for our homes and for this building we are meeting in right now, for a copy of your word. We thank you for shoes and coats in the winter, for food to eat. All of these things point ultimately to what we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, for Christ. And we pray that the song of our heart, whether we are lacking or whether we are abounding, the song of our heart would be, all I have is Christ. Would we see in him our sufficiency and our reward forever? In Jesus' name, amen.